Our second Bible reading this morning is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 6. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, or the widow, or the orphan, and those who turn away the stranger from justice, and do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, the sons of Jacob, have not come to an end. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's bow our heads and pray for God to help us understand what he himself has said in his word, the Bible. It says in Luke chapter 24, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we pray for that to happen here and now. Would our minds be opened by the Spirit of Christ so that we can understand the scriptures and be transformed as a result. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed whatever you did to celebrate the 4th of July last Monday, whether that was watching a fireworks display perhaps, or grilling some food in a park, or just taking a laid-back day off. The 4th of July is one of those State of the Union days when commentators think and talk about how America is doing. Don't worry, that's not a topic I'm about to go into. But for the sake of this morning's sermon, it is worth focusing on one State of the Union fact. America is still the richest country in the world. When nations are ranked according to gross domestic product, the standard annual measure of national wealth, the one, two, three list goes America, China, Japan. And the gap between America and China is slightly greater than the entire GDP of Japan. So you could say there's a Japan-sized wealth gap between America and China, between number one and number two. What has America's great wealth got to do with today's passage in the book of Malachi? 
Well, it means we'll have to use quite a lot of imagination to get ourselves into the heads of the Israelites in Malachi's day. We belong to the wealthiest nation on earth, arguably the most powerful nation on earth, and to a certain extent we bask in that glow. Whether consciously or subconsciously, I think it's fair to say that many Americans understandably bask in the glow that comes from America's preeminence. That means there's a big gap between how we think about our situation and how the Israelites in Malachi's time thought about their situation. And so we'll need to work hard to think ourselves into their shoes. For the rest of the sermon, we're going to follow the structure of the passage. It begins with the people's complaint. It moves on to the Lord's comeback. God replies to the people, defending himself against their accusations. And then the passage finishes with the Lord's caution. God will give the people what they want, but they might find they themselves are left out in the cold. And that caution, that spiritual warning, also applies to us in our period of salvation history. So we ought to find these ancient words from the book of Malachi piercingly relevant to our own lives. Let's begin with the people's complaint, which is found in the paragraph at the top, chapter 2, verse 17, the people's complaint. Please look down with me to that verse at the top of the passage. Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? The Israelites, interacting with Malachi, have grown cynical about God. They're back in their own land after being exiled in Babylon, but the land doesn't belong to them. It's one miniature province in the vast Persian Empire. These Israelites see themselves as the property of the kings of Persia, which is humiliating and exasperating. In the book of Nehemiah, which belongs to the same time period, the people express their anguish in prayer. They say to God in Nehemiah chapter 9, We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. Because of our sins, its harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies as they please. We are in great distress. Those words give us a glimpse into the miserableness of being crushed underfoot by an enemy nation. How different their national situation was from our own. But those words I've just quoted from the book of Nehemiah were spoken by Israelites who were still trusting in their God. They were praying. And that prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of the Bible's model prayers. In contrast, the Israelites in view in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 are going through the same experiences but without faith. They've lost their trust in God, their confidence in him. They've grown cynical about the God of Israel. Let's look down again to that verse at the top. In the second half of the verse, Malachi quotes back to these disillusioned Israelites what they themselves have been saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, 
and he delights in them. In the eyes of the Israelites, their Persian rulers were the bad guys. They were evil idolaters. And yet, they're the ones in charge. It looks as if the Lord is rewarding wrongdoers. And that's why they asked the question at the end of verse 17, where is the God of justice? We should see that question as more scornful than genuine when you take into account the blasphemous lack of faith in their previous statement, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. These Israelites aren't responding to their situation with faith in God's goodness. Instead, they're throwing shade in God's direction. They're not praying to God, they're complaining about God. Now, before we move on to the Lord's answer, there's some more background that we need to consider. We can tell from that question, where is the God of justice, that the people have been expecting some kind of divine intervention. They've been expecting that God will step in to improve things for them. And the reason why they've had that expectation is because of some grand prophecies made a few decades earlier. Not long after the people's return from Babylon, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, predicted great things for Israel, such as overflowing wealth and international prominence. We'll focus on just one of their prophecies, something Haggai said about the temple in Jerusalem. The temple built by the people after they returned from Babylon was a sorry-looking replacement for the temple the Babylonians had destroyed. But listen to what Haggai predicted. He said, the glory of this present house, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, will be greater than the glory of the former house. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the, present, of the former house. That was an astounding prophecy, not only because the temple built by Solomon was far more magnificent architecturally than the post-exile temple, but also because that earlier temple had been set apart by miraculous signs demonstrating God's approval and endorsement. On the day when the earlier temple was dedicated, fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. And the temple's interior was supernaturally filled with a dark cloud representing God's presence. That's a hard act to follow for this second temple. And yet... Haggai had told the exiles, the returned exiles, that their temple's glory would be even greater than the glory of the former temple. If you give it some thought, the only way the second temple could outperform the first temple would be through some more glorious manifestation of God's presence. God had dwelt in the first temple in that dark cloud. Haggai was saying that a more glorious manifestation of God's presence than that was on the way. But by Malachi's time, several decades later, it seems the people have grown tired of waiting. They're skeptical and unbelieving. We've heard their complaint. Let's now see how God answers it. The next section of the sermon is the Lord's comeback. The Lord's comeback. Where is the God of justice? God's answer to that question reveals that he is on the way. 
and he'll make his presence felt when he arrives. There's an ancient Roman proverb that says, it is the master's eye that fattens the horse. The point of the proverb is that if the master of the household doesn't look closely at the horses in the stables, they'll likely be underfed. But if the master comes to the stables to inspect the horses for himself with his own eyes, his servants will make sure that the horses are always well nourished. It is the master's eye that fattens the horse. We find that same kind of thinking in today's Bible passage with the Lord's temple. God himself will come to the temple to make sure that everything there is just as he wants it. Let's look down to chapter 3, verse 1. It's a verse about a visitation. And as I read it now, ask yourself, how many people will be making this visit? How many people? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. What do you think? How many people are visiting? One person? Two people? More than two people? Bible commentators agree that God is predicting the arrival of two people. First, a messenger to prepare the way, and then someone else, someone who can only be God. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me, God says. If there was any lingering doubt about the identity of the second visitor, the next line clears it up, and the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The temple is God's. And so the only Lord who can call the temple his is the Lord God himself. Then the next line speaks of the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And that's probably another way of describing the divine visitor because in whom you delight echoes the earlier words whom you are seeking. So there's a parallel going on there. Well, when the people heard God's comeback to their complaint, their eyes must have widened. Haggai had said the post-exile temple would be the venue for greater glory than the earlier temple. Now God has explained how that will happen. He himself will pay a visit in person. And yet in verse 2, God dials down the enthusiasm that might be generated by such an astonishing announcement. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. Don't automatically assume, God is saying, that this future visit will be a pleasant experience. The divine visitor will bring fire and industrial grade soap. If you were here a couple of Sundays ago, you'll have heard Malachi's condemnation of the priests serving at the temple in his time. Here's a quote from earlier in chapter 2 to refresh your memory. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth people should seek instruction, 
but you have turned aside from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. That's the current state of affairs in Malachi's day. And so when God comes, he'll need to purify the priesthood. That work of purification will be effective, Malachi says in verse 3. It will produce offerings in righteousness. But it won't be an easy process for the priesthood to go through. Verse 3 says, And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priests. They had to belong to the tribe of Levi. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. To purify silver, according to the helpful website WikiHow, to purify silver, it needs to be melted down in a crucible, a melting pot above a blazing hot furnace. The impurities will then separate from the molten silver and float on its surface, which allows the refiner to skim off those impurities. The priests will have to go through the human equivalent of that procedure when the divine visitor comes. Now, it's possible the regular Israelites listening to Malachi are feeling relieved that it's the sons of Levi, the priests, who will go through the refiner's fire rather than them. But if that's what they're thinking, their relief is misguided. In the last section of the passage, Malachi turns from the priests to the people in general. The title for the third heading is The Lord's Caution. The Lord's Caution. Throughout the passage, a theme has been emerging. Be careful what you wish for. Where is the God of justice? The people complained all the way back in the first verse of the passage. They wanted their God to come and get involved with their situation. To their minds, that would have meant out with the Persians and in with the wealth and international leadership spoken of by Zechariah and Haggai. But be careful what you wish for. Let's look down, please, to verse 5. God says, Then I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, or the widow, or the orphan, and those who turn away the stranger from justice and do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. In other words, when God comes to give Israel the good things he's promised, the people shouldn't think they'll receive those good things automatically. If they're living a life of rebellion against God, he'll judge them. He'll testify against them. They won't be included in his good purposes. Be careful what you wish for, God is saying to the people. When the God of justice comes, the God of justice will judge you as well as the nations. Well, it's almost time for us to apply today's Bible passage to our own lives. But first, we must think about the extraordinary way in which these words were fulfilled in the year 33 AD. First, the messenger came to prepare the way some years before 33 AD. John the Baptist was that messenger. He preached to all the people urging them to return to God and live life his way. Then, 
Just as Malachi predicted, the Lord suddenly came to his temple. When Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, entered the temple, he purified the priesthood, just as Malachi prophesied. The impure dross was separated from the silver. Jesus' actions in the temple, pushing over the tables of the money changers, and driving out the buyers and sellers, those actions had the effect of turning the chief priests against him. The chief priests then played a significant part in the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, true silver was found in the priesthood. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So there was a narrow and precise fulfillment of those words in verse 3 about the refining of the priesthood. But in the New Testament, we also find a wider and more general fulfillment of those words in verse 3. And that brings us to New York City in 2022. How should we apply this passage to our own lives? There may be people here today or listening online who are not yet following Jesus. Please, if that's you, take the start of verse 5 to heart. Then I will come near you for judgment. That was partially fulfilled when God visited his temple in person. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed because the people of Jerusalem had largely rejected him, and it was destroyed in 70 AD. God came near for judgment. But the Bible says Jesus will come again, and this time not for partial judgment, but global, universal judgment. I once heard a preacher tell the story of an encounter he had with a sceptical non-Christian. And the sceptic said to this preacher, what about Northern Ireland? Why doesn't your God sort out Northern Ireland? This was at a time when the troubles there were at their height. But as the preacher explained to the sceptic, if God sorted out Northern Ireland and all the problem areas throughout the world, every single one, eventually God would reach that sceptic. His life, his words, his deeds, his heart. And that is what is going to happen when Jesus returns. That sorting out of all the world's problem areas, including billions of human hearts, only way to survive that judgment, to get through it, is by seeking God's forgiveness through Jesus. I said earlier that the chief priests had a hand in Jesus' death. That's right, but so did God. God the Father planned the death of God the Son because Jesus' death offers the world hope. He died in the place of everyone 
who trusts in him, his death paid the penalty for our sin so that we won't have to pay that penalty ourselves. Please come to him and trust in him if you haven't yet done so and receive the salvation from judgment that Jesus offers. Those of us who are already trusting in Jesus, we should pay close attention to the purification principle in verses 2 and 3. In the New Testament, there's a sense in which the priesthood is opened up to all believers, as we heard in our first Bible reading. All believers should present to the Lord offerings in righteousness, to use the words of verse 3. But in order to do that, we will need to be purified. We'll need to be refined in God's furnace of purification. And this isn't optional for believers. The whole point of today's passage is that God's blessings can't be totally decoupled from our obedience. God's blessings can't be totally decoupled from our obedience. It's not that our obedience earns God's blessings. As I've just said, it's Jesus' death on our behalf that saves us from our sins. But as God's saved people, we are to live life God's way. That is what we are saved for. It's what we're saved into. Unrepentant, rebellious living puts a person on the wrong side of God's judgment, as we can see so clearly there in verse 5. That's why God's blessings can't be decoupled from our obedience. You may have heard the point put like this, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It overflows into obedience. The faith that saves always comes with a God-given change of heart that says to God, put me in that melting pot above the furnace. Put me there, refine me. Please, God, get rid of the impurities in me. Make me like precious gold and silver. As the picture suggests, being refined by fire is not a comfortable process. When God reveals nasty things in your life, in your heart, you'll feel sick about them. You'll feel sick about yourself. And although we can get moral impurities removed from our lives by God's power, praise God, most Christians find that progress is slow and difficult because we're so attached to our sins. Our victories over sin are never perfect or entirely final in this life. The most mature Christians will agree with that. Do you know what it is to enter into God's refining fire? 
Do you welcome God's purifying work in your life? Through today's Bible passage, God is pleading with you, don't walk away from my furnace. It is hard to be in that melting pot. It is uncomfortable, but it's good. It's good not only for salvation reasons, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's also good for life in this world, for living in this world. Our lives are better when our moral impurities are taken away from us by the power of God, by the power of his furnace. Perhaps, perhaps as I say these things, you can think of certain areas of your life that need to be put into the crucible above God's furnace that need his refining, purifying attention. Perhaps you can't think of anything, in which case, I wonder if your pride might need to be placed in that crucible. Maybe later today you could go to God in prayer and name specific things and ask him to get rid of those impurities and take away that dross from your life. Our lives are better when our moral impurities are taken away from us by the power of God. Before we close, please look down with me to verse 6, the final verse of the passage. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, the sons of Jacob, have not come to an end. God doesn't change. He has standards. We're not saved by living by those standards. We're saved for them. We're saved for that life of obedience, empowered by God's Spirit. But God expects his standards to be maintained, his unchanging moral standards. And the point of verse 6 is that if God did change, if he lurched back and forth, morally speaking, we'd all come to an end. No one would be saved. It's because he's faithful to his own moral purity, his holiness, that we have hope. Our hope of eternal life depends on his faithfulness to his own holiness and his power to keep us walking in his ways. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, the sons of Jacob, have not come to an end. God's faithfulness to his own holiness and his power to help us live in accordance with his holy ways, God's faithfulness gives us eternal hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for the power that opened our eyes to the glory of Jesus and the wonder of his salvation. Thank you that he did it for us. He took the blame and paid the penalty in our place. 
We thank you that there is nothing more for us to pay. The condemnation has been taken away from us and placed onto Jesus as he died on the cross. We praise you for this. Heavenly Father, we see in your word that you do not grant your blessings in a way that is entirely decoupled from obedience. And we pray that you would empower us. We pray that our saving faith would not be alone, that it would not be separate from obedience. Would our faith overflow into obedience by the power of your Spirit? And so we pray that you would refine us in your furnace, through your furnace. Take away our moral impurities, we pray. Strengthen us for this, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your willingness to give us this power to work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.